This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park, historic Magnuson Park. This is Cascade of History. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage, exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. All right, well, welcome to the fourth episode of Cascade of History. We're live at historic Magnuson Park. This is, of course, the site of the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station that was here for decades, site of the around-the-world flight that took off in 1924 in April and landed in September. There is so much history here, it made perfect sense to do a history show for Magnuson Park. Now, we have a couple of wonderful guests joining us in studio. Um, Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels, the the brilliant team behind the uh, Seattle Now and Then, the Now and Then column in the Seattle Times every Sunday. We're going to be having a far-ranging conversation with them about um, their earliest childhood memories and when they first got excited about local history and how they were able to turn that into a lucrative career. Um, but first, we have a little bit of breaking history going on. We have a, a live correspondent out in the field. I've got uh, his name is Ken Zick. He's an old friend of mine. And I'm going to bring him in here on our phone line. Ken Zick, are you there? I can hear you. Yes, I All am. Right. Well, thanks for joining us live tonight on Cascade of History. Um, now, we originally sent you out to what I used to, I still call Totem Bowl. Um, I think the official name of it is Tech City Bowl. It opened back in 1958, and the word was that they were closing tonight for good, and we were going to have you there. But apparently there's some breaking history news that you can share with the listeners. This is an exclusive, I think, for Cascade of History, in case you're just joining us. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, it was a uh, pleasant surprise. It came out about 7 o'clock to catch the last hour of uh, the Totem Bowl, Tech City Bowl uh, life. And when I was talking to some of the staff members, they uh, told me that the developer who was uh, going to do the replacement project had backed out of the deal. And so not only um, they're planning on closing at 8 tonight, not only are they open until 10 o'clock tonight, but they're open sort of on a month-by-month basis for an uh, undetermined amount of time. Wow. Um, so wait a second. So if the actual, the, you're telling me the deal fell apart and there, there, there isn't a buyer currently for that piece of property? So, the, so the, the wording that was used is that the developer, the developer backed out, and they weren't sure what was going to happen. So, um, wow. I mean, I could, I could make some, make some guesses. I mean, economy is tough. And people are, you know, people are pulling back in terms of real estate and interest rates and all that. But yeah, it definitely sounds like it gave the uh, bowling alley a uh, reprieve, and so it'll be open for a while. It's like a stay of execution. It's like <laughs> it, it's like a spare instead of a strike. Um, what's what the, I mean? Is the mood? What's the mood like there tonight on a on a Sunday night in early October when they've just been given a, literally a new lease on life? People are having a great time. There were when I was here um, when I first got here, there were a bunch of families and kids bowling, you know, the seven o'clock hour, kind of like after dinner, and then they've slowly uh, packed up and gone home, and they've been replaced by groups of adults who are, you know, out here uh, out here bowling. It's lit up for. Um, they do the moonlight bowling with the neon lights in front of the in front of the pins, and they've got like a light show on the lanes, and they've got videos going in the back. It's kind of like the old uh, midnight uh, midnight rocking rocking uh, bowl. Huh. 
So there wasn't, it wasn't like you were sitting there and everyone was moping and thinking it was going to close, and then they announced on the intercom that, you know, folks, we're sorry, or we were, we've got some news that we're going to be staying open. There wasn't a big, there wasn't something really dramatic like that, was there? No, it, no, it seems it like most of the folks here are regulars, and, and, they, and they knew. I think they're just, they're just you know, enjoying, enjoying their space, you know, for, for a little while longer. That's that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's, that's usually these stories are. It's rare that the, the. I think I hear. I think I hear pins actually cracking in the background. <laughs> that's that's that. Boy, I feel like I'm right there at that totem bowl talking to somebody on a cell phone. It's really. Uh, it's it's like you're right there in the bowling alley with us. Um, so I want to just repeat again for people who are just joining us here live on Cascade of History on uh, Space 101.1 FM. We're sharing breaking news, striking news. Totem Bowl, aka Tech City Bowl, on Rose Hill just blocks away from where I grew up, has been given a new lease on life, a reprieve. The developers backed out. The bulldozers are not going to be tearing it down anytime soon. That's, boy, that's that's a big surprise. So I'm really glad you're there to cover it live. Now, um, I've got these wonderful guests here live in the studio with me, and we're going to talk about other stuff around Northwest history. Are you able to kind of join us a little bit later on, give us an update as to how the mood might have changed there as this news spreads that we're on this breaking story that we're we're the only media outlet anywhere in the world covering the story right now. Do you think you'll be able to give us an update in about half an hour? I certainly can. I'll, I'll stay by and order myself a salad and a soda box. So all right. I'll all right. hang out and check back in a little bit later. All right. Thank you, Ken Zick. That's uh, Ken Zick. He is our roving correspondent. He is at Totem Bowl, a.k.a. Tech City Bowl, a.k.a. Tech City Bowl, right between there, Kirkland and Redmond on Rose Hill. And that's the breaking news, in case you're sh- just joining us. Breaking history. Totem Bowl, Tech City Bowl has been resurrected it's on the third day fourth it's sun it makes sense it's a sunday it's like a it's like a secular church a bowling alley for some people and now for families who weren't able to get there before october 2nd which is this doom and gloom date for months it's uh it's it's back in business so what this uh gene sherrard and clay eels are here in the studio with me they're the brilliant duo behind now and then in seattle times they took it over from paul dorpat i know you were working with paul before he retired gene yes i was um so Let's talk to you first, Gene, so we hear your voice talking about your reaction. What's your reaction on hearing the news that, again, in case you're just joining us, Tech City Bowl is, is, is not closing down for good tonight? Well, this is the best news I've heard in probably the last year. I'd say it ranks up there with, um, uh, oh, I, I have another story that I just, I, I heard about last week, which was uh, the, uh, what is it, the f- third fourth Christian Science Church, which is at the corner of 47th and uh, 50th, has received historic landmark status. Oh, that's great. So, uh, but that doesn't compare with the bowling, I, I have to say. I, I, I've always wanted to go bowling again. I only went three times in my life. <laughs> okay. And the first time I went, it was like uh, when you go out fishing for the first time and you get, you get the biggest fish in the boat. Well, I actually, uh, what's the high score? You bowled a 300 in your first game? I, I did not. I okay. bowled a 200. <laughs> That's though. pretty good. I've never bowled 200. I was on the JV uh, bowling do team. I, do do I believe you? A 200 in your first game? It That's was, hard to believe. That's pretty good. Uh, that's the voice of Clay I, Eels. But, but then again, you know, after that, I was, <laughs> I, I was crap. I, I've, I, I, this is the way sports are for me. I'm really good in my very first game, and everything is downhill from there. Now, Clay Eels, who's here with us as well, you're a West Seattle guy. Absolutely. I remember first first time I ever heard your name, it was, let's see, it was 1991. It I sounds think. like Middle Earth. Yeah. <laughs> 
I was working at Cairo Radio the first time around, and I was Greg Herschel was really actively involved. Greg lives just a couple blocks away. Yeah, yeah, and he was actively kind of helping you or helping publicize what you were doing to save the Admiral Theater. Absolutely, we were thrilled. Uh, um, that that was a <laughs> that that was a formative experience in terms of me going from journalism to preservation, and uh, uh, the we, we learned in the newspaper. Uh, just uh, three nights before that the Admiral was closing on a Sunday night. <laughs> and so we organized a picket. We had 50 people out there, you know. Uh, we had our full legislative delegation. We had our future mayor, Greg Nichols, oh, yeah. out there picketing with his family and, uh, <laughs> you know, save the, you know, don't sink the ship, keep the Admiral afloat. And we didn't know anything about what we were doing, but within a week, we started engaging in the landmark process. And six months later, we got that thing landmarked. And it can never be torn down. It's, uh, it's, and you know, brings tears to my eyes every time I, I go. It's only four blocks from where I live, and when there's a lineup outside, I mean, you know, if if we hadn't saved it, it would have been, uh, you know, another retail on the bottom and apartments on the top. We need we need more of those, yeah. don't we? <laughs> That's. I mean, okay, so. When you got into that, there was a private owner who was intent on tearing it down. And yes, was there uh, an adversarial relationship at that point with you guys and the owner, or was it? Well, it was an adversary. You know, Seattle's got one of the most um, powerful landmark laws anywhere because anybody, you, me, anybody can nominate a building for landmark status. And if you prove it uh, to that it uh, meets one or more of six criteria in the landmark board, uh, agrees, uh, you can get the building landmarked even owner over an owner's objection. Yeah. And the owner at the time was Cineplex Odeon. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize it. Yeah, they big, were, uh, huge, okay. yeah, enormous big chain. Toronto company, I think, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> we used, behind their backs, we used to call them Cineplex Odious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they were, yeah, I, I actually f- kind of felt sorry for the lawyer for Cine- for Cineplex Odeon because uh, we would we would pack these landmark board meetings and there was just this one guy, Howard Stambor, the attorney, and I, I think he felt... He felt kind of alone. <laughs> was he getting an hourly rate, though? Probably he was probably fine. Too. I yeah. I mean, he was getting paid to do what we were. He was doing, and we were all volunteers. See, that's the thing about these history projects. It's like they're. Um, I think people who get involved in those kinds of things, um, the people who don't understand the impetus or don't understand the motivation, they think it's all about nostalgia or about trying to relive the old days. But I think what you said, that's or you said you drive by and you see people lined up, and it's like where people gather, or this bowling alley where Ken Zick is reporting, in case you're just joining us, Totem Bowl is not closing. Um, these communities, businesses where people gather that become, the public feels as if they own them because And those they, kinds they of places are the best ones to go after for landmark status yeah. because you can raise a community campaign based on that. And, and what better than a movie theater? I mean, you know, First Kiss, first love, you know, for whatever. People have these visceral emotional experiences at a movie theater. So was was Saving the Admiral Theater, was that your first sort of public history experience, like where you sort of witnessed your history, witnessed history, faith in public, and everyone knew that what you really cared about? Well, sure, I mean, in terms <laughs> of activism, but um, we kind of had history fever in West Seattle back then because two years prior, we published the first ever history book about West Seattle called West Side Story. Oh, that's that giant format 
like a news, yeah. newsprint thing with a soft cover. I, right. have, I have one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it makes a good doorstop. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great resource. It's a great resource. <laughs> we, uh, everybody who subscribed to the West Seattle Herald at the time, which I was the editor of, uh, 14,500 people got one of those plopped on their front door nice. when that was published in July of 87. And so things kind of snowballed at that time. And, you know, you got to understand that this was before the Internet. I mean, we, yeah. we collected uh, 4,000 petition signatures, you know, standing in front of Safeway kind of thing. We, we sold 1,300 Save the Admiral buttons wow. for a buck apiece. I mean, this was grassroots, and people just rose up and, and said, no, we can't lose this place. Yeah, and the fact it was a neighborhood place. I remember around the same time the uh, music hall was being threatened and ultimately demolished, and this, that was sort of – it didn't have a natural community or constituency around it. So Now, um, Gene Sherrard, do you have a first – can you identify an experience that first sort of sucked you into becoming kind of a person who really hit, loves history and does stuff about it, talks about it, writes about it, takes pictures and that kind of thing? You know, I have a first – memory (coughs) and it was when I was about three years old yeah and my dad was a doctor at uh, what's today Harborview and then was called King County uh, General and we lived in Yesler Terrace and he was a young resident and I remember Smith Tower on the in our view as I we'd be I'd walk out into the backyard we'd walk down to Goodwill and Smith Tower would always loom. Uh, <clears throat> I think my first, uh, it, and, and my first interpretation of it was it was a rocket ship. It looked yeah. like a, you know, because you could only see that, that I, wonderful. I know that view. I was just driving you on Yesler a couple mornings ago, and I stopped and took pictures because that view where you just see the upper third of the Smith Tower, it's like it's, it looks bigger than it actually is. There's something, some kind of a trick of the, uh, yeah. trick of the eye there. So I know, I know exactly what you're talking it's about. It's just, it's magnificent. And so for me... There's a handful of visual represent, representations which, which, which go back uh, pretty substantially, but I think the very first one, and it's actually one of my first memories of a city, yeah. which, which is, uh, so when I go by Smith Tower, it, it summons up a whole, a lot of recollections. And Gene, you, you're... Th- uh, of the two of us, the Smith Tower is your beat as far as our column is concerned. You've yep. done a number of columns on the Smith Tower. Yeah, I'm taking lots and lots of photos of Smith Tower. So from all different sides, and, and there's uh, and each perspective is, allows for a discovery of another element of, it, of, the, of the tower. And it was considered when it was first built to be a bit ungainly, yeah. you know, like a giraffe, I think, yeah, yeah. one of the— one of the uh, uh, local architects called it. So, so when did, did the two of you officially take over, or when did Paul Dorpat officially retire and you two become the, uh, the carry the mantle of now and then in it, Seattle it's, Times? It's a bit fuzzy. We we've helped. You know, I've I've known Paul for more than thirty years as has Gene, yeah. and, and uh, um, Paul is now eighty. He will be eighty four this month, later this month. And um, can you imagine? He did this for 37 years, every single week, 1,800 columns. I mean, who does something for 37 years (laughs) like that? And he, um, it got to the point where where, um, he needed some help. And Gene and I, uh, we filled in at times. Um, uh, (laughs) 
one time I wrote a column for him, and he and he said, "Clay, that was the best column I'd ever wrote. <laughs> I never wrote." <laughs> and uh, um, and so we kind of became the natural heirs apparent when when Paul was bowing out. Yeah. And we've we've done it for about three years now. And, and they're the, lucky. They're lucky to have you guys because those are big big shoes to fill. And what, what we're really lucky for is that the times allowed us to continue on, and they've expanded the space for us and. Um, we were just really grateful to be able to carry on the tradition and the legacy of Paul. Yeah, and I think um, traditional media, mainstream media, has realized, partly because of the popularity of history on social media, that there's a huge audience for it. It's not this rarefied thing. It's not just some uh, kind of an esoteric thing. If you look anything on Facebook, people like to look at old pictures. They like to post old pictures. They like to say incorrect things about old pictures that they that they make up or they think they know and they like to contradict each other and not read the stories and make up. but it's like there's sort of this there's a there's a there's a hunger for it social media in particular i think has really highlighted that and i think the times is smart to keep doing now and then. i think it's one of the most memorable things in the paper every week that everybody you know anyone who subscribes to the paper takes a look at that column at some point it's not like you forget what's on the sports page you forget what's on the other pages but now and then stands out. So, but unless you guys have made some changes, the t- the the tone of it or sort of the, the personality of it, as it should change with with, with the changing of the guard like this, who does, can one of you guys articulate what you've sort of intentionally changed about it? Well, sure, each of us can. I be, I'll just throw out one, and then Gene can jump in. I mean, one one is that uh, we intentionally lean toward then photos that have people in them, and we intentionally put people into the now photos. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas before, a lot of them were just building to building. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, so that's one change, I would think. What's another, Gene? Hmm. Well, I think as, you know, as Paul was doing this, uh, his, and it may, it may just have to do with, with the 37 years that he was, that he, he performed this sort of extraordinary service. Uh, but as he was crafting these columns, he, he, he really did, uh, he, would, he would go back and forth. So occasionally we would see columns about architecture. Occasionally it would be about the cityscape or uh, important photographs that came over the transom that, you know, I think there was a, there was a point in about 2011 when uh, a Queen Anne family dug up some old photos and sent them to Paul. And, and what what he did was he realized very quickly these were the very first photos ever taken of the top of Queen Anne. Hmm. And in a sense, he became, uh, over those decades, a repository for uh, photographic history. People who would, uh, who didn't know what to do with their family photos that had turned up, uh, if, they had been, if they were paying attention they could say, "Wait a second! I can send these to to Paul Dorpat, and and uh, and maybe he can identify them. Maybe maybe they're of value. Maybe they're unique." And we still see some of that today. But that was a tradition in yeah. Seattle that that Paul developed. Uh, that uh, perhaps um, I don't know if any other community has that that kind of resource and tradition. And just as a little sidelight, uh, history link. Um, our wonderful statewide history, online history, uh, derived from one of Paul's uh, and Jenny McCoy's uh, books, Building Washington. That Mm. was sort of a fundamental text for 
the beginning of History Link, where Marie McCaffrey and, and her husband, Walt Crowley, uh, created this online history source. Yeah, and wasn't Lorraine McConaughey considered one of the founders too? Yes, isn't it Paul Lorraine, Paul Dorpat, Lorraine McConaughey, yep. Walt Crowley, and Marie McCaffrey? They're the are they the big fours? There are big fives. There are Pete Best in History Link. There, <laughs> there's a lot of people who yeah. who joined in and became incredibly yeah. Alan Stein. That's right, whose Alan, name yeah, must old, never old friend of mine, be yeah. forgotten. But uh, these are, uh, I think that in a sense we have um, uh, access to these traditions of gathering and sh- and shaping our understanding of history that came about because of those decades of, of weekly columns. Yeah, particularly before the internet where, you know, even Mohai's collection or UW's collection or any photograph collection was only the only the purview of researchers who took the time to go and visit, either to see an exhibit at Mohai or to go dig through the archives at the UW. Exactly. I mean, before the internet, that, you're right, Paul Dorpat was the... Um, to like the public historian and kind of the public face and probably the most consumed purveyor of history of anywhere in the region, probably from all the readers seeing those photos he would publish every week. So yeah, it's a good I point. I don't so. think there's any question that, that Paul is head and shoulders the number one uh, person who has uh, inspired interest in local history. Yeah. And you don't have to be a long timer to fall into that crowd. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you could be here for 40 years or here for 40 days and you still you still have a, a, a sense of wanting to connect with home, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of, of why do I love this place? And that's what history does. And Paul doing this week after week after week and not just the column, but the, the books that he produced yeah. and other video projects. I mean, prolific is probably a good middle name for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're listening to Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're live from historic Magnuson Park along the shores of Lake Washington at the site of the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station, actually broadcasting from the Sergeant at Arms quarters above the main gate. It's a wonderful place to do a hot Sunday night live history radio show all about the Pacific Northwest. I'm thrilled to have Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels with me here in the studio. Um, the, the the ideas for this for the topics on now and then um, is there a rigorous process? Is there a uh, nomination process? Is there a committee that gets together every month and reviews several hundred uh, ideas, or is it just more random than that? Well, I, first of all, I have to say, um, Gene and I are, have taken over for one person, Paul Dorpat, and and it is a true joy of mine that. I am working with a partner on this. Yeah. Um, we bounce each other, ideas off of each other. We um, coordinate a schedule well into the future to plan what the columns are. Um, we get ideas from all over. People email us or call us, or we're looking ahead at specific dates so that we can um, coordinate a column in a timely way with, with an event or, or coming up or a, an exhibit or just a holiday or, or a season. And uh, so the ideas are everywhere. And, and, you know, to go back to Paul for a moment, I don't want to miss the fact that Paul, in his infinite generosity, I mean, one of the things I was able to do a few years back was to, to count all of the items in his vast collection, in his basement at the time. (laughs) More than 319,000 items. I'm talking about prints, uh, uh, negatives, uh, glass uh, negatives, videos, um, anything having to do with history. 
And those things he gave to the Seattle Public Library. That's right, yeah. And um, those things are in a collection that is yet to be formally cataloged by the library, and that's a process that is going to take several years. Um, and so we do not have access to most of that stuff because it's, it's in process at the library. But the remarkable thing is we are still overflowing with ideas and overflowing with photos that come in. I mean, it's the thing that you just discussed, uh, that, that everybody has a real interest in, in what this place was before. And it's, it's not like we're scraping for ideas. It's like, which ones are we going to have to weed out? <laughs> and do I, I remember talking to Paul several years ago and that he, he was working several months in advance. Or how far in advance? Like when you finish a column with the pictures, the now and then picture, the, the written part, everything, how long is it till it sees the light of day online or About in the paper? About four and a half weeks. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and they've actually, the magazine has actually given us uh, a, a shortened, I mean, usually submission is about six weeks in advance. Yeah, that's so they gave us a little bit of a of a break because we really want to keep it as topical as we can without yeah, interfering a- with the news. Absolutely. Because I remember you and I were talking right around the first of the year when it looked like the Guild 45th was being torn down. Yep. And you had a you had a column. Was it dropping that weekend or going to press or something that weekend? That would Clay had just that's right. written that's a right. column that was coming out that weekend. That's right. And he had to do a very quick uh edit. Yeah, and to, thanks to, thanks to you, Felix, because we're kind of working together on this. Definitely. And I, and I was spreading the word that it, I was falsely saying I thought it was being demolished. All they were doing were cleaning, taking down the sign that had been, been damaged somehow or something. But so I kind of was the little boy knew, who cried demolition. Yeah. We knew that this was uh, prefatory to demolishment. Yeah. We, we, and even though no one would admit it at the time, this is the typical process of which, which Seattle structures that are have some historical value this is the this is the method by which developers have actually managed to, to supersede the landmark laws. Yeah, because yeah. what they do is uh, there there are there are loopholes, and the loopholes include if it's just they can plead poverty, they can plead, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know the the legal language, but if if they can let a building deteriorate to the point where it would be more expensive, so they just let the roof leak. They, yeah, uh, demolition, demolition by neglect is the phrase they often use for that kind of thing. And then thing, they can yeah. plead their case and tear it down. So that's one danger uh, of, uh, that's occurred repeatedly in, in yeah. uh, you know throughout Seattle. You know, and they did they did tear down the West Auditorium last mm-hmm. week. That's they right. tore down the house in between the two a few weeks ago. Um, when I was looking into the story a couple weeks ago, there wasn't a permit applied for for the East Auditorium, the original part of the building. And of course, we're talking about the Guild 45th, which is a movie theater on 45th Street in Seattle. So um, with this show, I'm trying to make this show as regional as possible. Like we had some guys on last week from the Vancouver Sun mm. and a guy who leads neon tours along Hastings up in, in Vancouver along all the great neon signs there because I feel like the Northwest is this, there is a, it's a region here. If you count Washington, Idaho, Oregon, and BC as this sort of old Oregon country, kind of the original, you know, post, in, not post-Indigenous, but the place the Europeans settled in kind of had this specific sort of jurisdiction. And I feel like we're all, whenever I visit those other parts of this, of the Northwest, it all feels like we're in a region. I don't think that's it false really to try to stick that stuff together. Absolutely. But, um, so I'm hoping to, I want to find the, I want to find the Clay Eels and Gene Sherrard of Portland. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, there may not be one. I know there's a guy in Spokane who does similar now and then photos and stories. Yeah. Blanking on his name. Not, it's not Jesse Tinsley, is it? Maybe somebody else. Anyway, I want to find the other people doing these stories because I think 
Dorpat was the first, certainly the first to do it every week and it's be, do it as prolifically as he, as he did it and the high quality. But it's everywhere now. So I want to know what the movie theaters are. They're tearing down in Boise. You know, I want to know what's going on in other parts of the Northwest. So um, we're going to take a, a little break now. We, have, we, always, we always play some vintage audio from the, um, the audio collection, um, just about this part of the show. But we'll come back and we'll talk more with um, Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels about their work on Now and Then and the other stuff they do to be uh, history guys about town. This is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell at Space 101.1 FM, live from historic Magnuson Park. We're here till 9 o'clock tonight. Um, this little bit of audio that I have, it's uh, part one of eight of a series that was produced in 1946 by Olympia Beer. It's called The End of the Oregon Trail. And I'm trying to remember if it's the 50th anniversary in 1946 or the 75th anniversary of Olympia Beer. But this is a really slick Hollywood production. William Conrad's the narrator. Ooh. It's got sound effects. It's got pro- there's the probably some, there's probably some politically incorrect uh, things in here. I didn't have a chance to read. Listen, I've listened to it before in the past, but it's been a while. But uh, let's go ahead and give a listen to uh, episode one, and, and we'll do the whole eight episodes over the next eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll do a, an up, uh, synopsis and update every week. But here's episode one of the end of the Oregon Trail on Cascade of History. The days they were weary, the nights they were long, and the wind it did blow like a gale. But the far off horizon kept weary hearts strong to the end of the Oregon Trail. The end of the Oregon Trail, a cavalcade of growth in the great Northwest, presented by the Olympia Brewing Company on the eve of its golden anniversary, commemorating 50 years of association with the growth of the Pacific Northwest, that great land of the fir and stately pine and crystal summits. The end of the Oregon Trail, dedicated to the spirit of those who first said, Washington or bust. There wasn't much fitting to the land, they said There wasn't much fitting to the land, they said The Congress of the United States the year, 1845. The speaker, Daniel Webster. Here he And so, gentlemen, and so I repeat, what can we do with the western coast, a coast of 3,000 miles, rock-bound, cheerless, uninviting, and not a harbor on it? What use? What use have we for such country? I will never vote one cent from the public treasury to place the Pacific Coast one inch nearer Boston than it is now. Oh, Daniel Webster was a very fine man, but he made a mistake. 
Daniel Webster was a very fine man, but perhaps he didn't know. Perhaps he hadn't seen the look in the eyes of those few who had already gathered at Independence, Missouri, with the West in their blood. Perhaps he hadn't talked to them and felt the hope that they felt. Men like Colonel Michael T. Simmons and George Bush and Samuel B. Crockett and Gabriel Jones. Well, Gabe, we'll be getting out of independence pretty quick now. That's right, Colonel Simmons. Some people think we're my attached. Most think we're downright crazy. Yep. Well, are we, Colonel? I expect we are, somewhat. But I reckon in a country where a man's free to think and act as he sees fit, it's allowable to be a mite crazy. As long as you don't go around swatting flies with a wagon pole. <laughs> yep. <laughs> People shake their heads when you talk about Oregon. But look at this town of independence right here. Why, 40 years ago, there wasn't nothing. Somebody had to be first, Gabe. We'll be right back with more from the Pacific Northwest on Cascade of History. To learn more about Space 101.1, visit our website at space101fm.org. Once you're there, you can listen to the live stream and share it with your friends far and wide. See a program calendar, check out the real-time playlist, or even donate to our nonprofit all-volunteer radio station, Space 101.1 FM from Historic Magnuson Park, and streaming live at space101fm.org. Come aboard. It's time for more Cascade of History with Felix Bunnell. All right, we are back in studio. We're live from Magnuson Park on a Sunday night for the only live radio show all about Pacific Northwest history. It's Cascade of History with me, Felix Bunnell. I'm joined in studio tonight by Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels. We've been talking about their work on the Now and Then column in the Seattle Times and all sorts of their, their where they first gained entry into the magical world of history. Um, uh, we want to go out to, uh, in case you're just joining us, we've been following some breaking history news tonight. It was supposed to be the very last night of uh, Totem Bowl, which they renamed Tech City Pin Center about 25 years ago, but I still call it Totem Bowl. Same way I still call that place at the Seattle Center the Food Circus. That they, they call the Armory, Absolutely. but it's still the Food Circus in my mind. Um, anyway, uh, I got see if we got Ken Zick on the line here. Ken, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, so when we checked in with you about a half hour ago, as the news was just breaking that Totem Bowl had been uh, spared its execution, Ooh, spared its execution, <laughs> that was unintentional. That was unintentional. That was a natural, organic uh, pun. Um, so, what's the mood like there now? Is is the is the crowd thinned at all? Are people still reveling there around the hardwood? Yeah, they're still. Yeah, the uh, balls are still rolling, pins are still falling. Um, crowd's thinned out a little bit. We're probably. Uh, when I first showed up, almost all the lanes were full. Now we're about a little bit over half. But the uh, but the mood's a little. People are more serious about the bowling, or more serious about the beer drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and I just feel bad for the people who showed up there tonight, like you, thinking there was going to be this big sort of bittersweet farewell to the 64-year-old community asset. But instead, you know, sun comes up tomorrow in the smoky skies over Rose Hill, and Totem Bowl will still be standing there, and it'll, it'll be another night of. Uh, Another night of uh, drinking and bowling all before everyone tomorrow evening. Yep, that's definitely. It seems too like a lot of the folks here appear like they're regulars. Like they come here, you know, every week, or they're pretty familiar. It's not like there's a bunch of folks who, you know, used to come as kids <laughs> and are here for the for, you know last hurrah. Yeah. So, so, so it feels kind of like like bowling as usual. 
See, and that's great. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the part about this, these whole, these old historic landmarks, whether it's a theater or an ice skating rink or a roller skating rink or a bowling alley. They're private businesses, but they're places where people gather. They're places where community exists. And, you know, as busy as I am, and I don't, I don't have a bowling alley in my neighborhood anymore. I kind of envy places that still do because it's, uh, it's just a magical thing to be able to uh, go inside a business like that and see people you've known for decades in many cases. So, well, um, now, if, if we are able to determine another closing date for Totem Bowl, will you be up for being our roving correspondent again to help bring us the, uh, the bittersweet finale if it, if it comes to that again for, for uh, Totem Bowl? Of course. I've actually, I've actually had a marvelous time here tonight. It's great to be back at the old bowling alley. I think I, um, I, think I mentioned before I had, uh, was part of my fifth-grade bowling team. I'm sitting about 10 feet away from the alley, our favorite alley, fifth one from the right. So. So this place has a lot of memories for me, too, so I'd love to come back. Right on. It's great. You can hear the pins falling in, in the background there. So, All right, that's Ken Zick, our roving correspondent on Cascade of History, with the breaking, wonderful history news that Totem Bowl, a.k.a. AKA Tech City Pin Center, is still in business and will still be open come Monday morning. So, all right, Ken, have a good night. Thanks for joining us. All right, thanks, Felix. Bye, Ken. Wow, that's amazing. That's a really crazy, crazy thing. That doesn't happen very often. Um, now, um, with the Seattle Times... Um, I know you guys, there's the print paper that comes out on Sunday, which, you know, I usually get it about 7 o'clock in the morning. But I often see the column posted on either Wednesday or Thursday sometimes. Yeah, they have, they, have they, they decided they, their column being a history column fits the, the rubric of, of throwback Thursday. And so it's always <laughs> oh, posted the Thursday before the Sunday print. Okay, okay. But then you guys also, you don't, that's not the only material. Oftentimes there's a link to the, there's more material on the website. Is that something you're still doing? Yeah. Every Indeed. week, every week, right. pauldorpat.com. If you want to learn more about a column and see acres of more photos, videos, news clips about it, go to pauldorpat.com. In fact, you can sign up there to get weekly updates. Just enter your email address and you're in. And... Um, has anything changed about the way the Times is managing the stories? I mean, doing is there a is there a now, then, and then sort of because you know, there's enough Dorpat columns from 40 years ago, where the, the the now picture from 1982 doesn't look like the now picture from 2022 anymore. You know, it's it's been pretty interesting uh, ma- making the change because this is something Clay and I dealt with as we were in that process of about a year where we were slowly uh, taking over the column from Paul. Mm-hmm. And Paul, for his 37 years, he was adamant that he would never repeat a photograph or a column. And, uh, and he, he would not listen to our, our reasoning that perhaps those who were reading his column in 1982 could use a refresher. <laughs> so, for example, uh, there's a column that's coming up that I worked on about um, – uh, Seattle's first candy shop owner, uh, Walter Piper, and uh, Andrew Piper. And uh, Paul had written about him in 84, and I went back and dug up some more material about him and wrote about this candy shop and ice cream maker in the who arrived in Seattle in 1873. And, and, but Paul would never return to that, to that subject, even though I think that there are people who have been born (laughs) since 1982 who might want to hear something else. (laughs) So one of the liberties that we've taken is to take some of those glorious photos that Paul used in the first couple years of his column because he 
had some magnificent classics and return to those and start uh, and, and use them as uh, sort of starting points for for history for makes us perfect as well. sense yeah um, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've been researching a story that maybe I haven't written about before but I know other others have obviously history is a is a uh, iterative process yeah. and I've used Paul's old columns for factual information and I've asked Paul about him too it's like it's sort of he's he's a great resource he's I live not too far from where he used to live there in Wallingford and I used to see him just out walking my dog and stuff um, the uh, I, I can I actually I don't know the answer to this question is is now and then only within the Seattle city limits no. Oh no. Okay. Oh no. What percentage? I've of done. The- I did now and then. So even back with Paul, if I would go to, so we'd we'd play. Okay. I would go to London and Paris, and Paul, as a sixteen-year-old, had had been in a uh, international congress and visited both London and Paris. Nice. And was already taking extraordinary photographs. So I went back with my uh, kids on tour, and I teach uh, at a small school in the East Side. And I went back to the same spots that Paul had visited as a 16-year-old and took those pictures again and then wrote about the the young uh, Washingtonian abroad. And that was kind of the – so, no, we've gone – Clay's done Yakima. I just recently did um, Nia Bay. Uh, we've done... Tacoma's been there a few Tacoma's times. Tacoma's been in there a few times. Predominantly, it's the Seattle area, and it's also um, one of our, um, you know, the, the ways that we operate is is to try to touch all parts of the city and not not overdo one area, you and, know. And this week's column, I think, is Luther Burbank Park on Mr. Island, right? That's right. So, yeah, that's, that, that's makes right. that answers the question right there, because that's not Seattle. Sure. Because um, you could, I mean, you could theoretically do all of Western Washington. I mean, the circulation of the Seattle Times is considered Western Washington for the most part. Yeah. Yes. And we're, we're, we're happy to explore any story that, that, that emanates, uh, you know, from, from the state. And I think the excuse is wherever a, a, a reader of the Seattle Times might travel, Entiat, let's do one about the wall, uh, you know, the, the graduation wall and yeah. the, the mountain in Antioch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think those are all fair game. And so we're, we're very liberal in our, uh, or Catholic in our pursuits. Very good. <laughs> and, and as Paul always said, a great column always starts with a great then. Yeah. You know, we'll have people say, well, why don't you do a column on X, Y, or Z? And, you know, in your mind you're thinking, well, that's a great idea, but we, where's the then photo? We got to start with something then that we can repeat in the present moment. Another thing that Paul always said was that uh, the column is like a game of hide and seek. People want (laughs) to look at the then photo and see what's changed in the now, what's stayed the same. It's kind of a fun game. Yeah, it really really did sort of, I mean, the more I think about it and talking to you guys and thinking about this, that whole social media fascination with old photos I mean, I don't think it's it's not only because of Paul, but in this area, I think all those people who are clamoring to those specific Facebook pages about Seattle or King County or Western Washington, I would guess some major percentage of them, some majority, were whelped on, you know, door pad images and the stuff you guys made in Seattle Times. It's pretty crazy. Um, this is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell. We're live from Magnuson Park. We're going to be joined by a guest by phone in a minute or two here talking about an event coming up next weekend in Tacoma. I've got Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels with me here in the studio, and we're talking about their work for the Seattle Times and other history projects they do. Um, 
what other stuff do you guys do? I mean, you can't, the Seattle Times can't take it. Well, maybe it could. Maybe, I mean, it could easily take up full time doing that kind of work. I mean, research has no. It's not easy to be like, okay, that's an hour. Time to put that column to bed now. <laughs> shall we? Could, shall we tell the truth, Clay? I think this is the time. This is the time to finally <laughs> oh, no. reveal the truth, Gene. <laughs> well, the truth is that uh, we're we are contractors yeah. for the Seattle Times. Yeah. Freelancers. We're freelancers. And so what, when we go to work, let's just say uh, explicitly that, that if we make, um, uh, uh, what would you say, half of what minimum wage is today? Oh, uh, that would be generous. That, that would be generous. That's a good, very diplomatic word, <laughs> Gene. Wait, what he's trying to get at is um, this is a, a paid pursuit, but paid not – a great deal, and and what it really is is labor of love, as all of us in this history community Absolutely. are about. Absolutely. You know? I mean, I see our caller. See if it's Lauren Burris is with us here. Hang on one second. See if we can. Lauren, Hello? can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, you're on the air, live on Cascade of History, uh, live from Magnuson Park. Thanks for calling in tonight. I've got Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels here with me. They do the now and then column for the Seattle Times. Okay. We've been talking about all things history, but you guys have a pretty important event coming up, up next Sunday I wanted to let people get a chance to know about far enough in advance so they could go and take part in this event if, if they're able to. Okay, let me start off with one correction there. It's next Saturday. Oh, it's next Saturday. Okay, good. Even even less time to wait, wait then. An even yeah, shorter wait. Good. I'm, I'm glad I was wrong. So what yeah. is it? What is it? First of all, where is it happening and what are you guys up to? Well, it's a headstone dedication ceremony uh, for a black Civil War U.S. Navy veteran at Oakwood Hill Cemetery in Tacoma. The event starts at 11 a.m., and the address of the cemetery is 5210 South Alder Street in Tacoma. That's off of I-5 at exit 130. And and how were you able to determine that an unmarked grave uh, contains the remains of a black Civil War veteran who came to Washington a long time ago? Yeah, he came to uh, Washington in uh, at least by 1888, when it was still a territory. Um, I serve and the sons of Union veterans of the Civil War as a Grand Army of the Republic records officer, or GAR records officer. And one of my duties is to research... Grand Army of the Republic Post. Those are the local chapters. I was researching Custer Post Number 6 of Tacoma, and I came across, as I was going through it alphabetically, David Franklin, U.S. Navy. I did know that there were several sections of Oakwood Hill Cemetery that the Custer Post Number 6 had obtained possession of, and a few years previous, at the Tacoma Public Library, my wife and I photographed a number of work, uh, work pro uh, progress administration uh, veterans' graves registration cards from 1939. And whenever I found a member, I'd check against the cards we had photographed, and there was one for David Franklin. So I opened it up, hoping to find out a little bit more about his Navy service. But what was outstanding about the card is what it didn't say. Uh, the card inferred it was, he was a veteran, but it didn't say what anything about his service. And it indicated in the field for grave marker, blank. 
and the field for transcribing the grave marker was also blank. So that inferred it was a, uh, an unmarked grave, at least in 1939. Um, I checked find a grave, and they had no photograph and no indication he was a veteran. It was just based upon his death certificate. But I went to the Washington State Digital Archives, found his death certificate, and it indicated he was black. And so that really jumped out because we only know of less than a handful of black U.S. Navy veterans of the Civil War coming out to Washington State. That's pretty amazing. Do we know why he came out to Washington? No, we do not. That's one thing we've not okay. been, There is a blank in there between 1865 and 1888. We, and we've had multiple researchers who specialize in black genealogy trying to figure that out, and they've all failed. Huh, that's pretty amazing. And he lived until 1920, so he's here for what? That's almost... It's hard to do math when I have a microphone in front of my face, but that's about... Uh, he was here for something like 42 years in what's well, now Washington? 20, 90, about... 32 years. Yeah, about 32 <laughs> Told years. Told you I can't do math when I've got a microphone in front of my face. At least. Um, uh, interesting. We, yeah, and we know he wasn't on the roster in 1885, but he was on the 1888 roster. So that's yeah. how we can determine he arrived someplace in between 1885 and 1888. Yeah, because the number of black people in what's now Washington, I mean, that even in 1920, that number was, was very, very small. It didn't, didn't, that number didn't really start to grow until World War II and after. Um, do, have you been able to track down any of his relatives or descendants, I guess, living in this area or, or anywhere? We've not been able to anywhere. Huh. Uh, and we've had, as I said, specialists in that area um, trying to find relatives. Uh, to see if there's any possibility, because we would love to have him at this event if we could track him down. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, we've had some of the best people that we know in this state trying to find, figure that out, and we've been unable to. We do know at the time of his death he was living with his younger brother. Uh, he's listed in the 1920 census as the head of household, and then his brother Gus as the uh, as his brother, and then there was a third person. Uh, in the household, a John Thompson, hmm. who in the death announcements of David said he was his cousin. Hmm. All three are indicated in that census as black, and and the names aren't the names aren't that distinctive. I mean, those those aren't names that that there's probably lots of David Franklins around that have no connection to the David Franklin that you guys are honoring on Saturday. That's correct, and that's one of the. It's been a little bit confusing from the standpoint of there. There's more than one David Franklin that served in the Navy, we had to make sure we sorted out the correct records as to the David Franklin's buried at Oakwood Hill Cemetery. And what do we know about his military career, or his naval career? He enlisted in mid-November of 1863 um, in New York, which is where he was born, New York City. Wow. So he was born free, as was his parents. We do know that. And... Um, so he then reported to what's called a receiving ship, the USS North Carolina. And the receiving ships were ones that were permanently anchored. Usually they were uh, War of 1812 vintage. And, but when a new recruit uh, enlisted, they would be sent to the receiving ship for wherever they, uh, uh, they enlisted, which is known as a rendezvous in the Navy. Shortly after, in early December, he was assigned to the USS Don, 
the USS Don had been in the shipyards for repairs in New York at the time he enlisted, the previous crew would have been either discharged or sent to other ships, so they needed a brand-new crew. And so he became part of that new crew for the USS Don that consisted of 59 crew members and three officers. And the uh, it was originally a civilian ship launched in about 1857 that the Navy purchased in 1861. And so in 18, December of 1863, the USS Don was assigned to the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron, and the Don... Uh, was generally assigned to the James River area of Virginia. Uh, they were to blockade any blockade runners, but also to provide, to kind of take care of any Confederate forces along the shores of the James River. Hmm. And uh, so that's where their assignment was. David Franklin himself, his rank was ordinary seaman. His duty was he was the officer's steward and cook hmm. wow and so to the three three officers which would have been white of the 59 crew 30 percent were black interesting crew. yeah what a great story and what a what a i mean i surprise is the wrong word but what a what's the cool thing that that story stretches all the way from new york city to where he served in the navy during the civil war to uh to Tacoma. Now, um, Custer Post, he was a member of uh, when he passed away in 1920. Was that an integrated Grand Army of the Republic post, or were they all integrated, as, or is there such a thing? Is that a fair question? It's a fair question. The uh, Grand Army of the Republic was our nation's first racially integrated organization. Uh, the standard for mem- the general standard for membership was it was open to anyone who was willing to place their body between the flag of the United States and those in rebellion, as long as they served honorably. So the Grand Army of the Republic from the very beginning in 1866 was racially integrated. We do, we do know there were black members in the Custer Post in Tacoma and also in the, St- the Stevens Post in Seattle. So there was multiple posts that we're aware of that had black members. We know of posts that had Hispanics in it, hmm. those that had Asians, Pacific Islanders, you know, Native Americans. And, and I mean, that, that's another, that's a, a great angle to that story. I, I can't wait to, I hope you guys are able to track somebody down and hear from a relative and learn more about this man's life and career. Now, the organization that you're part of, tell me tell me about what, what your group is called and what you guys do. And we're the, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> we're known today as the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. We were established in 1881 as the male auxiliary to the Grand Army of the Republic. We were originally known as the Sons of Veterans. In 19, the 1920s, our name was changed because of the Spanish-American War and World War One, mm. having Sons of Veterans, to, the, to better define that we're the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. The intent was that we would carry on the work of the Grand Army of the Republic. And when the last Union veteran died in 1956, who was a member of the Grand Army of the Republic, uh, besides being the last veteran, we then took over uh, the work of the Grand Army of the Republic, and we, are, we also are the legal heirs to all of their property. Terrific. 
Well, I know you guys do a lot of great work, and there's a lot of great Grand Army of the Republic cemeteries that sort of dot the landscape, some of which have been taken over by the federal government, some like the one here in Seattle, which is has a friends group and is, has some help from the Seattle Parks Department, but uh, it need, needs a good long-term friend. Um, so, Lauren Burris, um, thanks for joining us. Your event is next Saturday, October 8th at 11 o'clock at the Oakwood Hill Cemetery. Um, right. What's the web address for your group if people want to get more information? Our, uh, our website, www.suvpnw.org. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time to join us on Cascade of History, and good luck with your event next Saturday. And do let us know if you find out more about David Franklin, all right? Okay, Thanks. we will do so. Thanks. Good night, Mr. Burris. Thank you. Boy, pretty amazing. Um, I like that. That's a that's a rare story to think that's of. To know there's a, I'd love to know more about his career and what actually drove him or pushed him toward what's now Washington. That's the part that... I mean, my parents didn't come to Washington until 1959, and we know why. I mean, my dad got a job at Boeing, so they moved from California after coming from Europe after World War II. But those stories of why people come here, just that, that stuff, I find that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So um, we're almost out of time. We're getting toward the top of the hour here, but I wanted to thank Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels for being here. Um, got some exciting columns up. You can give us some previews of stuff that's on the horizon. That, that what, you said four-and-a-half-week deadline? You must have... Must yes. be four and a half weeks worth of columns that you, you know about, but you, well, you, you can't know, share until right, Thursday. Right now, I mean, it, the, the the biggest story in Seattle, obviously, is the Mariners finally making the playoffs, and uh, <coughs> it's tough to write, uh, you know, four or five weeks in advance of something. But uh, next Sunday, um, our column is about the last Seattle professional. Uh, team to win a championship, and that was the 1966 Seattle Angels, and that team also was aided by a Rodriguez. All right. Well, we're going we're to leave it there because that's uh, that's that's a great tease for everyone will be waiting by their computers at midnight Wednesday night when the <laughs> Throwback Thursday version of the column appears. I want to thank Gene Sherrard and Clay Eels for being here tonight, being our first guinea pig in-studio guests on Cascade of History. Hope we can do it again sometime. There's so many more great stories to share. Thank you, Felix. I want to thank Lauren Burris for joining us from the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War, telling us about their event next Saturday uh, to honor that, uh, to dedicate that new gravestone for David Franklin. And I want to thank Ken Zick, our live roving correspondent who was out there in Kirkland tonight for that breaking history news about Totem Bowl Tech City Pin Center not being closed. (laughs) So uh, this is Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bunnell, and please join us next Sunday night at 8 o'clock for more live conversation on the only local history show, local live radio history show about Pacific Northwest history. Have a good night. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell.